This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Teresa Noor? First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crimes, and offer my analysis. Teresa Noor was born in Sacramento, California on March 14, 1946. Her father was an assistant cheesemaker, and her mother worked in a lumber company operating a machine that made pencils. Teresa had one older sister. Teresa's father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and had to leave his job. Her mother was the only one in the family earning money, Her mother was described as morbidly obese, and she had diabetes. She collapsed from heart failure on March 2, 1961, while standing next to Teresa in a market. Teresa watched her mother die right in front of her. Her mother was only 53 years old. Teresa's father was forced to sell the family home without the income that her mother used to generate. Teresa married a man named Clifford Sanders in September of 1962 when she was 16 years old. This was the end of her time in high school. She did not return for her junior year. Teresa had a son named Howard in July 1963. Her marriage to Clifford was less than ideal. Teresa routinely accused Clifford of being unfaithful, and he had a drinking problem. In June 1964, Teresa claimed that Clifford punched her in the face, but she refused to press charges. On July 6 of that same year, Clifford informed Teresa that he was leaving her. This was one day after his 23rd birthday. He would not make it to his 24th. Clifford had packed his belongings and was ready to leave the residence when Teresa retrieved a Winchester lever-action rifle chambered in 3030, a cartridge that is often used for hunting deer but she had a slightly more husband-like target in mind. Teresa shot Clifford one time in the chest. He did not survive. Some reports indicate that he was shot in the back, but the bullet also passed through his wrist as if he was holding his hand up as he was being shot. This is not consistent with being shot in the back. Teresa told the police that Clifford was physically harmful and consumed excessive quantities of alcohol. She shot him in self-defense. 
family members of Clifford said that he was not violent, although they did have to admit the alcohol part. Despite Teresa's claims, she was arrested and tried for murder. On September 22, 1964, she was found not guilty, which was a verdict that no one could explain other than to say that Teresa was pregnant at the time. Maybe this led the jury to view her more favorably. After being acquitted, Teresa asked for the rifle back. I guess it had sentimental value. In March 1965, Teresa had a daughter named Sheila. Teresa met another man not long after this, but they broke up because she was having sex with his best friend. She then met a man named Robert Knorr and quickly became pregnant. They married in July 1966. Teresa would have a daughter named Susan in September of that same year. In September of 1967, Teresa had a son named William. In December 1968, she had a son named Robert. And in August 1970, she would have her sixth and last child, a daughter named Terry. Teresa and her husband did not get along very well. They physically attacked each other several times. In December 1970, Robert left Teresa. In 1971, Teresa married a man named Robert Pulliam. He thought that she was having an affair, which led to him divorcing her in 1972. In August 1976, Teresa married a man named Chester Harris. The marriage only lasted for two months and seven days. Teresa and her six children lived in Orangevale, California for a while. After Howard moved out, Teresa moved to an apartment in another neighborhood in Sacramento with the five remaining children. Her behavior changed significantly at this point. For example, Teresa isolated from other people, gained a lot of weight, would not clean her apartment, became increasingly violent, disconnected the home phone, refused to answer the door, and would not permit her children to have friends over. Over the course of several years, she mistreated her children in a number of ways, including threatening to kill them and physically striking them. She often used a one-by-four wooden board with the electrical tape wrapped around the end for a handle. She called it the Board of Education. Over time, Teresa started to focus a lot of her aggression towards Susan. After one particularly violent attack, Susan ran away from home. The police found her and transported her to a mental hospital. Susan told the staff about what was going on in her home. Teresa offered them a different story, claiming that Susan was mentally ill. Social workers investigated Susan's claims. They interviewed her four siblings, but they did so with Teresa present in the same room. The siblings denied all of Susan's allegations against their mother, and Susan was forced back into the apartment. After this, Teresa's anger was completely out of control. She pulled Susan out of school and would not let her leave the house. Teresa eventually pulled all of her children out of school. She physically struck Susan frequently and handcuffed her to the kitchen table, only releasing her on occasion. This went on for two years. Susan repeatedly begged for her mother to let her go, saying that she wouldn't tell anybody about what happened. She would just disappear. On one occasion in 1984, when Teresa was on a rampage, she released Susan from the handcuffs and put Terry in charge of watching her to make sure that Susan didn't go anywhere. 
Teresa gave Terry a 22 caliber pistol and told her to shoot Susan if she moved. Teresa went into the kitchen to make oatmeal. Her son William was helping her. He accidentally dropped the spoons on the floor, which startled Terry and led to her pulling the trigger. The gun discharged and Susan was struck in the abdomen. There is another story about how this happened, which says that Teresa shot Susan. I think this is a more straightforward explanation, but there's no way to know for sure what happened. Teresa responded to the shooting by cleaning the blood from the carpet. She eventually treated the wound and Susan survived. Susan continued to ask to leave the house and disappear. Eventually, Teresa decided to approve her request, but first she wanted to remove the bullet because she did not want to risk that evidence being discovered. Robert removed the bullet under the supervision of Teresa, but this led to Susan becoming infected and slipping into a coma. On July 16, 1984, Teresa tied Susan up and put her in the back of her car. Teresa ordered William and Robert to come with her. She needed their help to drop off Susan. Teresa drove to a remote area and ordered her sons to place Susan and her belongings on the side of the road. Teresa then ordered her sons to cover Susan with gasoline and set her on fire. Susan did not survive. Her body was found the next day, and the police started investigating. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. After murdering Susan, Teresa started focusing her attention on Sheila, accusing Sheila of transmitting a disease to her. Teresa tied Sheila up and locked her in a closet. Sheila died of dehydration and starvation on June 21, 1985. Teresa left her body in the closet for several days after her death. She had William and Robert dispose of Sheila's body, but there was still a smell of decomposition in the apartment. Teresa became worried that the odor was evidence which could be used against her. On September 29, 1986, Teresa ordered Terry 
to burn the apartment in order to destroy this evidence. The fire did not cause too much damage. The police were able to find evidence of Sheila's murder. Teresa fled the area and went into hiding. William and Terry moved to two different places, while Robert remained with Teresa. They moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Robert was arrested in November of 1991 after killing a bartender during a robbery. He received 16 years in prison. Teresa fled to Salt Lake City, Utah after Robert's arrest. Terry contacted the police in Utah and told them that her mother had killed her sisters. They refused to investigate because they believed Terry was making up a story. Terry also told a mental health professional and an attorney the same story, but they dismissed her claims as well. In October 1993, Terry contacted the police in the county where Susan's body had been found. They decided to investigate and figured out that Teresa was responsible for killing her daughters. In November of 1993, Teresa was arrested for murder. William and Robert were both arrested as well. Teresa pleaded guilty and was given two consecutive life sentences with the possibility of parole. Robert was convicted of accessory after the fact. He received three years in prison, which was to run concurrent with his 16-year sentence. So essentially, he didn't have any penalty for his behavior. William was convicted of being an accessory. He was sentenced to probation and mental health counseling. Terry died from heart failure in 2011. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Teresa's children offered slightly different accounts about what happened in the residence. For example, there are different stories about how Susan was shot, but all of the accounts featured Teresa as a violent offender. Teresa's mood was unstable. Sometimes she was zoned out and other times she was extremely angry. The children had difficulty predicting what mood their mother would be in at any time. Although after she drank alcohol, she was much more likely to fly into a rage. The children indicated that there were actually times when things were good in the family home, but those days ended after Teresa's last divorce. Item number two, Teresa would frantically search for love when she wasn't married. Some of her husbands believed that she searched for love even when she was married. After Teresa divorced her third husband in 1972, she became even more desperate to find a romantic partner. She would regularly go to bars and try to find men. Teresa was rejected frequently. There are several reasons that may explain Teresa's rejections. For example, her tremendous weight gain, her sadistic and manipulative personality, and the fact that she had several children. Regardless of why she was rejected, she told her children that they were completely responsible. Teresa became increasingly angry at them over time. She viewed them as the cause of all her problems. She felt as though she was a good mother who dealt with impossible children. Which brings me to item number three. Teresa developed a special animosity towards Susan because she believed that her fourth husband had transformed Susan into a witch. Susan used these powers to cause Teresa to gain weight. When Teresa was young, her mother had burned books about witchcraft and demonology in the backyard. Teresa thought that this set the demons loose. On one occasion, she thought that the demons had entered the apartment and possessed the children. She made her children stay awake for hours overnight as she stood over them 
ready to attack the demons, never realizing that she was the demon. Item number four, what mental health and personality factors were at work in this case? Teresa had difficulty regulating her intake of alcohol, and at times she appeared to be depressed. She was described by various people as violent, unpredictable, jealous, manipulative, demanding, controlling, deceptive, paranoid, sadistic, and vindictive. The motive for much of her violent behavior appeared to be tied in with being rejected by potential romantic partners. For example, she killed her first husband as he was trying to leave. She was extremely jealous and controlling with her other husbands, and she blamed her children for her romantic failures. This suggests that there might have been a borderline personality component to her behavior. Instead of peaceful, frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, Teresa was violent. She appeared to have antisocial personality characteristics like being impulsive, irresponsible, and committing crimes. She was also narcissistic. For example, she was self-centered and did not have empathy. Teresa's paranoia was pronounced at times, and she appeared to have delusions. For example, she was obsessed with demons and witchcraft. When putting all these behaviors together, it may have been that the drinking and paranoid delusions were made even more dangerous through the lens of borderline antisocial and narcissistic personality traits. She did not understand why she was rejected so many times. She became increasingly angry when she failed to get her way, but her narcissism did not allow her to accept responsibility. Her children became the targets. Her rage, sadism, and lack of empathy facilitated two murders and her other horrible crimes. Now moving to my final thoughts. The case of Teresa Noor illustrates the power that a parent can have over children and how this power is amplified when the parent isolates them from the outside world. Teresa could not have committed her crimes without her children's help. She ordered them not only to help her dispose of the bodies, but had them hold down whoever she was attacking at that moment. She forced them to take part in her bad acts, then made them feel as though they were true conspirators, like they had some type of choice. Interestingly, two were even convicted in connection with Teresa's crimes. The incredible amount of power that Teresa had over her children was not factored into that decision. The criminal justice system expected the children to behave as responsible citizens when their role model was a sadistic killer. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.